speak to you in the name of the one holy and living God. Through the centuries, we've divvied up stories about Jesus into two categories. With some, we say, here's what Jesus did, what Jesus said. Let's try to live that way too. Care for the poor, welcome the stranger, speak truth to power. We'll call these, let's live like Jesus stories. With others, we say, here's what Jesus did. Thank you for doing that, Jesus. Now we can live differently. The virgin birth, raising the dead, dying on a cross, being resurrected. We'll call these, wow, thank you, Jesus, stories. Well, you'd think Heading out into a desert with nothing but the shirt on one's back for 40 days and nights in order to meet Satan, well, shouldn't that be a wow, thank you, Jesus story? And leave it at that. And yet, here we are, the beginning of Lent, and the church says, go on, off you go, and sends us out to face God knows what. So if the church is telling us, here, you try it too, even metaphorically, do we have within or among ourselves whatever made it possible for Jesus to survive this test? Yes. What Jesus had and what we need is trust. Trust in God not trust in ourselves. Jesus didn't go out there saying, I've got this. Jesus went trusting that the Spirit had led him and that God would see him through. In addition to trust, the context is key, where we are in the journey. The arc of the moral universe, to use Dr. King's phrase, begins with each and every person as a beloved child of God, and it bends, however long it takes, toward ultimate consummation as the beloved community in which love with justice defines every relationship. We begin as beloved. We're on the way toward beloved community. It's in the middle here that things get complicated. We tend to get off track. But I see this pattern, this arc, in three ways today as we embark upon this season of Lent. One is the path Jesus is on. Two is the path we each are on as individuals. And three is our collective path as a society. They're not precise parallels, so bear with me. First, Jesus. Context. Immediately before Jesus' time in the wilderness and his encounter with Satan, Jesus was baptized. The Spirit poured out, and God affirmed, You are my beloved. Immediately after this time, Jesus embarks upon his ministry to bring about beloved community. 
But in order to proceed from beloved of God to creating beloved community, Jesus had first to meet these demons. This is a necessary step. And let's note some things here that will be applicable in these other arcs. First, Jesus does not stumble into the wilderness by accident. The Spirit led him. The Spirit tended to him. But when he was famished, the tempter came. Turn these stones to bread. Throw yourself from the pinnacle. Bow down and worship me. The tempter offers bread, power, safety. But it could be something else because the point isn't the specific temptations, but rather the underlying nature of temptation itself. It might as well have been confidence, fame and security, beauty, comfort and wealth. The tempter said in effect, let's make this about you, Jesus. If you are the Son of God, you can turn stones into bread. You're important. God will rescue you. At each, Jesus turned in trust and said, not me, God is faithful. The temptation for Jesus, as for us all, is to shift our allegiance, our confidence away from God and toward some substitute that promises a more secure identity. This passage is really Think about identity theft. For if the tempter succeeds, Jesus' true identity will be deformed, and his life as beloved will be derailed. I think we know what that feels like. For our individual journeys, I want to take this to a personal place and talk for a moment about how I enter the wilderness of prayer. I set aside a period of time. I center myself in the presence of God, which is to say I sit comfortably, my eyes closed, and I take deep breaths. I feel the breath enter as I inhale, as I exhale, I am still, I relax my face, shoulders, muscles, open my attention to God within, sense God's creation around me. I may have selected a few verses of Scripture to be read, savor, and in which I may dwell for these minutes. Or I may have selected that I will honor my desire to be still and present in the presence of God. And invariably, insistently, voices and urges arise. My mind wanders. Here there are differing paths in prayer. When something comes up, I might seek to note it, and then simply return to my breath. Alternatively, when something comes up, I might receive it with wonder, 
For there are times in prayer when we may meet parts of ourselves that we otherwise seek to avoid or keep hidden. Parts of ourselves that we're ashamed of or that we fear, little child hopes that were abandoned or squashed. We may meet these parts anytime as we react in a way that surprises us. Where did that come from? We find ourselves suddenly hijacked by an urge, overwhelmed, pulled off center. But in prayer, returning to the breath, resting now in the presence of the Spirit, we may engage these parts of ourselves with wonder, even and especially those parts we might otherwise seek to banish. God loves every part of us. Our wholeness as beloved of God and our capacity to participate in the beloved community comes as we too embrace every part of ourselves. And then at some point the bell rings on my meditation timer app. I say the Lord's Prayer. And afterwards, I might journal and note any feelings of desolation or consolation, and off I go. And then I do it again, every day. It's not magic. Does it work, a friend asked, noting that I'm wound pretty tight? I know, I said. Imagine how I'd be if I didn't pray. Well, the third arc. This year, during Lent, I invite you to join me and fellow Columbans in paying special attention to the ways in which the sin of racism in this country inhibits our movement toward creating beloved community. We're called to a season of reckoning. We're called to look yet again steadily at racism in our lives that we may see with new eyes how it came to be, the damage is done, and the ways it is perpetuated. As Christians, we are called to see how our theology and the practices of the church have contributed to, benefited from, and perpetuated racial injustice. For we have been deformed from our identity as beloved and derailed from our calling to bring about beloved community. So how are we to repent, to change our ways? How are we to trust, make amends, to repair? In their book, Reparations, A Christian Call to Repentance and Repair, Duke Kwan and Gregory Thompson make the case that racism is best understood as theft, theft of truth, power, and wealth. What did Satan promise? Bread, power, safety? They propose two ethical constructs to frame our call as Christians to address this theft. One is the path of restitution, which says that if something was taken, then those who took it are culpable and must repay. The second is the path of restoration, 
Because we are beloved and called to create beloved community, our faith calls upon us, they write, to spare no effort in repairing what was broken and to spare no expense in restoring to our neighbors all that was unjustly taken and to do so even if we ourselves are not directly culpable. Their framework situates us clearly on the path toward beloved community, yet now beset with risks to be taken and fears to be met. Drawing upon the story of the Good Samaritan, they illustrate the need many have to shift our perspective. Noting how fear drives us toward self-preservation, Dr. King wrote of this story, I imagine the first question which the priest and Levite asked themselves was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? By the very nature of his concern, the good Samaritan reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? End quote. Intentionally entering into a deeper exploration of how our faith calls us, how God calls us to address and repair the damage of racism through lamentation, repentance, and reparation. This is costly. It's not to be undertaken trusting in our own strength. Rather, trust in God. As the church, we are invited to cultivate a spirituality of vulnerability, to nurture a way of living with ourselves, with God, and with others, where our deepest wounds are not concealed by, but centered in this life of faith. I have nothing more to say at the moment. So in the next minute or two of silence, let me ask you to note, how are you feeling just now? What do my words bring up for you? Do you feel resistant, hopeful, weary, committed? something else. I'm not asking you to feel a particular way. I'm asking you to notice how you feel and then to wonder about that and to bring it to God. Amen.